Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and host of LPTV's The Breakdown, Tara Setmayer. Tara, thanks for joining me. As always, a pleasure, Reed. Also on board today is my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Reed. Good to be back. So, guys, today we're going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her continuing comparisons of mask mandates to the Holocaust, as well as a lot of corporations who initially said that they would not give to seditionist members of Congress, but are backing off of that. But first, The Breakdown and LPTV are back. On Tuesday night, you returned for your first episode of, I guess, the late spring, new and improved. You'll be back on tonight with another episode at 8 p.m. Eastern, streaming live on The Lincoln Project's Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter feeds. So guys, tell us a little bit about how it felt to get back in the game and what felt good and what we're hoping to achieve with LPTV. Uh, Tara, I'll start with you. Well, we are really, really excited about this because LPTV is a unique aspect to Lincoln Project. No other super PAC has ever done what we have done, creating a, a streaming channel and putting out the content that we put out and engaging with our audience and our supporters the way that we do. So it really, really is an exciting adventure for both Rick and I to be able to do this and to uh, start a whole new season with, you know, new and improved assets and bringing more content and programming and more engagement with our audience. So we're really looking forward to it. And it was a couple of weeks in the making. And if people only knew what goes into <laughs> what we do. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of moving parts. But the good part about it is that Rick and I actually really like each other. So the on-air chemistry that we have is authentic. It's like legit. (laughs) Yeah, it's like real. Like we actually like each other and we get to talk about things that we're passionate about. And, you know, as my old boss used to say, we get to fight for freedom and have fun while we're doing it and uh, inform our audience and get them engaged and excited to fight for democracy because it's going to take all of us. So we're back on Tuesdays and Thursdays at a new time at 8 p.m. We changed that time, I know, because we were listening to our audience. You know, our supporters were like, nine o'clock, you know, you're up against MSNBC and, you know, it's a little late for us. And so we heard you guys. And our new time is at 8 p.m. Folks can watch us on all our platforms. So keep watching us. We love it. Keep sending your questions, too. We like to answer your questions. So, Rick, before I talk to you about it, let's hear a little bit of that chemistry of you and Tara from Tuesday night. Poor pitiful Donnie. Um, it's not as if he was the one who was involved in the tax fraud and the bank fraud and, and, and everything else. It's right. somebody else. And by the way, I will take the over on whether he will sell Eric and, oh. and Don Jr. down the river. It's not even like a question <laughs> how quick they'll go to jail for daddy. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah, I think the only one that can safely say that, they, that they're good is Ivanka because sure. we already know that he'll do anything to protect her. Um, but the other two... Yeah, I'd be nervous if yeah. I were them. <laughs> if I were Don Jr., like, I'd be eyeing my options for a non-extradition country. <laughs> he might be looking through bars like, Daddy, please love me. I even went to jail for you. Will you love me now? Oh, my God. I didn't know him. He was barely my son. He was a volunteer, a coffee boy. Right, he only he came by the boy. office a couple of times. And so for everybody, that clip is related to the New York grand jury that's just been in panel to explore Donald Trump's potential criminal behavior. So, Rick, you have been through this rodeo many times, but I think it's probably very true to say that Don Jr. could go to prison for his father and Don Sr. wouldn't love him for it. Absolutely not. And 
from being the anthropologist of the shittiest person on earth of studying Donald Trump now for five years, I can tell you there is zero there. And Don Jr. is so thirsty for his dad's affection that he might think like, okay, well, somehow I'll go to prison for like six months or six weeks. It will work out. And 12 years later, he'll get news that his dad has died. You know, and he will never, he will never understand that he was hung out to dry. But Trump's organization has been a continuing criminal enterprise effectively for a long time. And at some point, the prosecutors are going to roll up somebody important and they won't stop till they get to the peak of the mountain. But, you know, Tara, just to continue on this line, because the district attorney of Manhattan, Cyrus Vance Jr., said that they were opening a grand jury into potential criminal behavior on behalf of the Trump organization. But, you know, we've never had, I don't believe, a president either in office or out of office indicted for a crime. We're not like some countries like Israel, right, who is consistently putting their leaders in jail. You know, at the federal level, we don't follow the tradition of states like New York or Illinois or Louisiana, who always have a governor or lieutenant governor or speaker or somebody going to prison. Don't forget New Jersey. My home state is in, uh, on that list, too. We put a couple in prison. Yeah, you guys are pound <laughs> for pound. New Jersey's pretty good. But yeah, read to your point. You're right. This is not something that happens on a regular basis. In fact, it's never happened. They were looking into Nixon after Watergate, particularly on the tax issue. But the kibosh was put on that once Ford pardoned Nixon. So, no, we've never been in this territory before. This is unprecedented. And I think a lot of people are looking at this, despite how you feel about Donald Trump. I think most people can agree, reasonable people who are not in the cult, can look at this guy and say he has gotten away with so much shit over the years that it's about damn time that the law caught up with him. Enough is enough. We, he almost bragged about how unscrupulously he runs his businesses. You know, everyone else, they're a bunch of suckers, right? You're a bunch of suckers and losers. I'm the king of debt. And, you know, he would flaunt it almost. And also, let's not forget, Donald Trump hung out with gangsters, with mobsters in New York in the 70s and 80s. He had a certain affinity for them. He wanted to be accepted because he thought they were tough guys and they were cool. And so, you know, with Roy Cohn, who was his consigliere and mentor, he was also a mob lawyer. So that's how Donald Trump has run his businesses for decades. And his father was no different. His father was a better businessman. But this level of unscrupulous, borderline illegal, possibly illegal now, we'll find out, way of running his business has gone on for decades. And it's about time that it caught up with him. Now, the fact that they have this jury impaneled now, it's a special jury, which means that it will be impaneled for six months. It'll meet three times a week. That's a little longer than usual. And it's made up of 23 people. And they only need 12 to indict. They only need a majority. So, you know, they say that prosecutors can indict a ham sandwich. And in this case, I guess it would be a... It's the whole ham. A giant orange ham. <laughs> yeah. So he's in trouble. So, Rick, as we look forward to this, I'm not an expert in grand jury proceedings, but let's say that it, they run the whole six months. And so that gets us to, what, almost December at this point. Let's say he is indicted. What does the conservative ecosystem do with that? Because I can't assume that they won't use it for all it's worth. Well, they'll ignore it as long as they can, which is something they're very, very good at. They'll pretend it's not happening. They'll put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 la. But eventually they will turn it into, this is the witch hunt. This is the deep state. This is 
you know, they couldn't beat Donald Trump politically, so now they're trying to beat him in court. They will turn it into a martyrdom operation in their heads because that's sort of their thought process across a lot of domains. If you can't turn it into something where you can have a screaming fit on Fox News about it, it's not really an issue. And one of the greatest pleasures of it, though, is it's going to scare the crap out of Donald Trump every day. He's going to wake up every day and go, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? It's like an animal trying to chew its leg off in a trap. Now, the downside, I think, is going to probably make a lot of Trump's supporters, both the external ones and the ones inside the camp, think that he better run for president sooner than later because he will try to establish a precedent where he's running for office and therefore be able to get back on social media, be able to get back in that idea that any prosecution against him is politically motivated. So to that point, one thing that we've sort of batted around internally at the Lincoln Project is is the idea that it will be very difficult for any Republican candidate in 2022 who's in a competitive primary to not go along implicitly or explicitly with the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. So I guess you can add to that list now, Tara, that not only was the 2020 election stolen from him, but now this is the punishment that the deep state is inflicting upon him. So it, it sort of pushes the craziness even further outside the norms of, I guess, what we're used to. This is one of those things where it just adds to the list of perpetual victimhood for Donald Trump. He is a professional whiner. I have never in my life seen someone, A, that's supposed to be a born and bred New Yorker, act like such a bitch all the time. <laughs> that is just so not on brand for New Yorkers. Now, I was born in Queens, raised in Jersey. My husband is from Brooklyn. So I look at this and I'm like, get it together and stop whining. But it's worked for him. If you look at it, it's a cottage industry. As a conservative, we used to be the we're not victims. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop you know, whining and complaining about being a victim of your circumstance and all of those things. That used to be part of the conservative ethos. Now, that's orthodoxy. That's exactly what it is. If you actually take responsibility and if you actually don't whine and complain, well, then you can't be a part of that club. The Republicans have turned into everything they claim to despise. And this is another example of that. So, yeah, they're going to milk this. Of course, they're going to whine and complain. Of course, Donald Trump is a victim. Of course, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I encourage people to go back and read the Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times report on the decades long tax schemes that the Trump organization pulled off. I think it was 2018 that that came out, 2019. And it got buried because that was not the biggest shitstorm happening at the time. Any other presidency that would have sunken them. But I encourage people to read that because it gives you a really clear idea of what the feds are looking at. There's that and also the Stormy Daniels thing. And the irony of all of this is that a lot of this came from Michael Cohen deciding to flip and tell the truth. But guys, you know, I want to switch gears a little bit. So your first guest of the season was Matthew Dowd, longtime friend of ours. Stuart and Steve and I all worked with Matthew. Well, I worked with Matthew going back to the 2000 campaign, as did Stuart, and we were all on 04 together. And then Matthew worked with Steve and I in California in 2006. So former ABC chief political analyst. And I thought he said something that was really interesting was when talking about the Liz Cheney's of the world and the Adam Kinzinger's of the world, that they had the courage right, to say that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. And that's what passed for courage in the Republican Party nowadays. But with, you know, that small amount of courage, such as it is, you know, comes a great deal of cowardice. And so last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia went and said that 
wearing a mask on the House floor was akin to Jews being put in boxcars and sent to Auschwitz. Obviously, there was silence, crickets from Republican leadership about that. And so some groups came out. The American Jewish Congress responded, you can never compare health-related restrictions with yellow stars, gas chambers, and other Nazi atrocities. Such comparisons demean the Holocaust and contaminate American political speech. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene must immediately retract and apologize. But that wasn't enough. She doubled down on it. Rob, can we play that clip? I stand by all of my statements. I said nothing wrong. And I think any, any rational Jewish person didn't like what happened in, in Nazi Germany. And any rational Jewish person doesn't like what's happening with overbearing mask mandates and overbearing vaccine policies. Do you understand, though, why some would be upset and offended by the comment? Well, do you understand how people feel about being forced to wear masks or being forced to have to take a vaccine or even have to say that whether they've taken it or not? These are just things that shouldn't be happening in America. This is a free country. So, well, I don't even know where to start here. Dear God, that woman is a dipshit. (laughs) She is just so despicable. But, you know, guys, it's one of those things one of our friends talks about who's got a lot of experience in sort of the authoritarian issues that you say something outrageous. Mm -hmm. And when people go crazy, you double down, you triple down, you quadruple down. Right. And that seems to be where she's going here. So, you know, it took five days for either Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy or Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to say anything about this. They probably hoped, just like they do everything else, if they could just ignore it, it would go away. But eventually McCarthy had to make a statement in which he said, quote, Marjorie is wrong and her intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. He goes on, but the rest of it's bullshit. And so, Rick, where are we now where this is the bar? This is the bar where it's the Holocaust. But it's not just the Holocaust. It's the Holocaust plus five days. Right. And there's no question that Kevin McCarthy understands where he is in the ecosystem now. He's not in charge of the Republican caucus. Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Lauren Boebert is. Paul Gosar. Mo Brooks. This clown car of people is now in charge of the asylum. And so he recognizes he can't really do anything more than issue a statement. But I think there are two things to really consider here. First off, Kevin McCarthy is, at the same time that he's being such a coward about her, he's telling corporate donors, come back to me. Everything's fine now. It's normal again. There's no problem. It's all good. We fixed the problem. They didn't fix the problem. The problem is more imposing than ever. These people are surrounded by lunatics. They cannot escape them, and they cannot control them. And so I think it's fascinating, to me at least, watching the discomfort of Kevin McCarthy and of Mitch McConnell manifests itself as this kind of anodyne and weak need. Well, it was inappropriate what she said. We're unhappy with her. Not, how dare you? Get the fuck out of here. We're going to expel you from the caucus. You won't vote with us. You're not going to talk to uh, with us. You can't sit with us at the lunch table. Get out, which is the correct response to someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But Tara, she's very popular with the Trump base. I mean, she raised over $3 million in the first quarter of this year. And so I have to assume that every bit of discomfort she causes the likes of McCarthy and McConnell probably delights Donald Trump and all the folks who over the years in focus groups have said that they dislike Mitch McConnell more than they dislike Nancy Pelosi. Margie Taylor Greene is Trump's girl. Let's just be honest about this. There would be no Marjorie Taylor Greene member of Congress if it weren't for the enabling and propping up of Donald Trump. To Rick's point, When Republicans were faced with these types of 
outliers. At the time, they were outliers. Now, they're mainstream Republicans. They kicked them out, whether it was the John Birch Society or whether it was David Duke in the 90s. You know, mainstream establishment, sane Republicans said, get the hell out of here. You do not represent us. That has not been the case. Once they accepted Donald Trump, what the hell did they expect would come out to run for Congress and say the things that they say and double down on them? They've taken the page right out of the Trump, Mussolini, Nazi, Germany book. And in this case, it is an appropriate comparison as far as propaganda and how they handle it. Just read Demagogue for President or Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book on authoritarianism, Strongman. So she is just incorrigible. Um, It's difficult to sit back and watch how arrogant and ignorant she is. And yet she is not reprimanded. Right now, there is a back and forth with her on Twitter and on social media. Her and her other asinine buddy, Matt Gates, another shining example of integrity, not. They're running around in this Between Two Fools tour that they're doing. And they are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's solid. Solid work. And, (laughs) And they're the ones saying that the Republicans that did condemn her for her asinine Holocaust comments they're the bad guys. They're the idiots. You know, how come they're not going after the left and the liberals? They're constantly changing the subject, trying to deflect from their own missteps and transgressions. The whataboutism stuff. See, look at what they're doing. Look at these liberals and what they're saying. How come no one's saying anything about them? And then she's also bragging about how she's so pro-Israel. Oh, I support Israel. While those lefties, they're pro-Hamas and terrorists and blah, blah, blah. And rationalizing this. You actually compared people having to prove they've been vaccinated or wearing masks to the Nazis making Jews wear gold stars and sending them off to gas chambers. You've got to be kidding me. And Republicans are just okay with this and have these mealy-mouthed responses to her. They're afraid of her. They're afraid of her because she is a proxy for Trump. They don't want to upset her because, God forbid, they upset their God king. And that is all you need to know about the state of the Republican Party today. Rick, is this the most fun she's ever had in her life? Oh, yeah, for sure. This is a place where she has found out that the rules of power today are not about philosophy or policy. They're about trolling, transgression, lying, performance. This is completely about the showmanship of the right today. This is what they want. This is the showmanship aspect of it. And... I promise you, she's firing out emails about every five minutes like, they're trying to cancel me. The libs and the cucks want to cancel me because I spoke the truth about blah, blah. And she is right. People want to cancel her. They hate her. She's a monster. But that's why they want to cancel her is because she's a monster. Well, that's something interesting. I was on the phone with a reporter here in Utah earlier in the week, and he was asking me some questions about the Utah legislature, which is usually a fairly staid body you know, was looking to pass things like making Utah a Second Amendment sanctuary state, outlawing critical race theory in schools, all these other things. And he said, you know, what's going on? I said, it's all a performance now. It's all a performance in service of the culture war that will give them electoral victory next year, I assume, because why else would you do it? That's their only card in the deck now. That is what they are, what they do, what they pursue in every argument now. It is you don't like us. You're trying to cancel us. All of the rich, elite, educated experts want to push us down. Da, 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 da. 
And, you know, no, nothing, nothing succeeds like success with, with these people in, in terms of their believing they're the oppressed class, that they're the ones who are the true Americans who are being held down by the libtard cuck shills. And, you know, here we are facing the reality that this is a popular figure. She's more popular in the Republican Party now than almost any of the mainstream Republican candidates. She's more popular and more accepted than Liz Cheney for because Liz Cheney stood up to tell the truth and defend democracy. And so that brings us back <laughs> to our, what the definition of courage within the Republican Party is and what the definition of cowardice is. And here's the other part, too, is that, you know, McConnell said something, McCarthy said something. But the truth is, is that most of the, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of rank and file members, both of the House and the Senate haven't said a word because, again, just close your eyes and hope the storm passes. And two, frankly, every one of these members, again, whether or not it's in the House or the Senate, I assume has at least one reporter that covers them. And yet no one seems to ask these questions. I understand local journalism is having a tough time, but these folks are on Capitol Hill all day. You know, it's not like it's hard to find them if you're not trying to. But Reed, it's not even local journalism. It's that, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and everybody else, they have people covering Capitol Hill every day. And they will sit and they will talk to people who are close to McCarthy and close to Mitch McConnell, and those people will spend them. You know, in McConnell's case, it's super lobbyist Josh Holmes, who's a super powerful figure in D.C., and reporters go to him and they bend the knee because they want the inside track on what McConnell's thinking and doing because he knows these things, right? So he's able to say, it's all normal. Don't worry about it. Trump's gone. We're fine. We're in control now. Even the most cursory analysis of the world around them shows that it's not fine. Well, and there was a story, I think, Rick and Tara, was it late last week or over the weekend in the Washington Post, I believe, that said that Donald Trump's online presence, his blog, you know, didn't get much traffic. He was not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. Ergo, he has no political power. And I mean, there have been a lot of bad takes, right? But this was like the Mount Rushmore of bad takes. Yes. Right? <laughs> you know, I was talking to someone and I said, you know, you have to understand that D.C. wants to return to the mean. It wants to go back to normal. But the world's not letting it. The problem is, is that the people who are living it, and Tara, you live there or live in the area, are still operating and viewing the world through a prism that no longer applies. It doesn't matter anymore. What they're trying to do is like, oh, well, Susan Collins goes on the Sunday show and says she's very worried and she just wants to talk about policy. Like, no, that's not what you get to talk about. I would hope someone would ask her, of all people, a hard question. But Rick, to your point, there's that transactional nature of things of, well, you can't ask her a hard question because, you know, you don't want to upset the senator. Right. And then she won't answer your question next time. Right. It's all about access. Well, and, you know, here's the bullshit thing, too. It's not like they answer your goddamn questions anyway. They say whatever it is they're going to say. I mean, Tara, how many times did you work for a member or did you see a member? And they're like, the Mitt Romney line, right? You get to ask the question you want to ask, and I get to give the answer I want to give. Listen, I was a congressional communications director for seven years. That was the game that you played. You controlled the narrative. If they asked you a question that you didn't want to answer, you answer the question you want. You give the answer you want to make it work, and you don't deviate from 
the point of view you want to get across. I mean, that's what political communicators do on campaigns with members. I mean, that's standard operating procedure. It's funny that you say that about like, why do you care so much about the access to these people? Because they never answer their questions anyway. That's what my husband says all the time. (laughs) Husband is a smart man. Yeah. You know, he's not a political guy. I mean, he's politically savvy and understands what's going on. He's married to me, but he's in federal law enforcement. So he looks at this and he's like, why don't they just say yes or no? Or why don't they just answer the question? I don't understand this. And then why doesn't the interviewer come back and say, yeah, but you didn't answer my question. You know, what is the answer? And they just keep going rounds. I'm like, hun, because that's politics. (laughs) He goes, and that's why you're in it. And I'm not like he just doesn't get it. And that's what frustrates average Americans that don't live in this crazy bubble. That's what frustrates them about politicians and frankly, the media, because once you have the business aspect of it and you have cable news, which has to fill 24 hours, there's so much competition now because of streaming, because of online blogs, you're competing as opposed to just reporting the news. And the palace intrigue that some of these Capitol Hill and White House reporters report on and what they get involved in That's part of kind of the soap opera of politics that gets people to tune in. It's a double-edged sword because people say they don't want that. They also, they're intrigued by it. I mean, there's always straight-laced journalists out there that do excellent reporting, particularly investigative journalists. But building those relationships, political relationships, is so important when you're a Capitol Hill reporter or a White House reporter because you can't get the insider information about what's going on without that. And everybody loves that in this town. It is all about relationships. So it's the same thing with not asking tough questions. And some reporters just don't care. Some just don't give a damn and they will anyway. But they're not getting invited to the White House Christmas party. Right. Well, speaking of people who don't like to be held to account, Judd Legum, who we mentioned on this program several times, and his morning tip sheet, Popular Information, has been keeping track of corporations who said that after January 6th would not give money to the 147 members of the House and Senate who voted against certifying the Electoral College vote. He went through this, and again, thanks to him, and went through the recent data dump from the FEC's campaign finance records. And here's what we found. There were three different tiers of companies and sort of how they acted. The first is companies that pledged to, quote, reevaluate their donation criteria after the 6th, and then directly or indirectly donated to GOP objectors. Those include Toyota, JetBlue, Ford, Northrop Grumman, T-Mobile, General Motors, and Altria. Now, on that list, Altria is the least surprising because once you've worked in tobacco, you know. Thank you for smoking. Thank you for smoking. (laughs) Great movie, by the way. But then there are a few more who said they'd suspend contributions to Republican objectors, but then donated to campaign committees like the Congressional Committee or the NRSC. Those include Walmart, General Electric, Intel, AT&T, Pfizer, Sanofi, and Oracle. And then probably the worst offender is Cigna because they're just giving money to the people who actually did it. They're given directly. So there's a fight going on in the C-suite. There are the marketing and PR people who say, this is bad for us. It makes our customers angry. The HR people are saying this makes our employees angry. And then at the other end of the table, you've got the public affairs, government affairs, policy people who are saying, got to keep doing it. Got to keep doing it. Just no one will care. Just keep doing it. So these are some iconic American brands, right? These aren't companies nobody's ever heard of. Remember, a few weeks ago, there was a story about Mike Duhame, who's a Washington consultant, we all know, who was advising these corporations and saying, people aren't paying attention anymore. Go ahead. Just do it. You need to keep Mitch happy. You need to keep Kevin happy. You need to keep doing that because, you know, if you don't, 
you don't know what could happen. It's the proof of the transactional nature of DC. And it's this idea on the part of these corporations that the political blowback is past, that the political blowback is no longer relevant to the corporate risk factors that these people are looking at. And I think Judd and others are doing some amazing work trying to keep them accountable. And it's important that folks that follow the Lincoln Project are involved with us as volunteers and as activists and who listen to this podcast and watch the breakdown Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., that they stay focused on letting these companies know. And I will say this. There's an army of government affairs people in these companies who are saying, oh, you got to make sure you don't don't piss off Mitch. Don't make Josh Holmes angry. I mean, Rick, they're toll booth operators. They are toll booth operators, for sure. They're sitting there. And again, government affairs people are the most anonymous of creatures in Washington. We ought to consider making a couple of those people famous at some point. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> well, so Tara, yeah, I mean, as someone who worked up there, and I understand that there's a slim difference between the official office and the campaign, but what does that look like on the inside when you're sitting in the, either on the floor or in the Capitol or in a House office building? So the people understand Rick's point about, you know, you don't want to piss off Mitch or, you know, McCarthy or people who are in leadership. Why do they care about that? Or why are some of these companies like Cigna giving money directly to these members? And it all goes back to the days where you had what we used to call pork barrel spending and earmarking. These members of Congress Usually they had a corporation or a factory or, you know, employees or something in their home districts that directly relate to these companies. And they would lobby these members of Congress to get things that were beneficial to them. And there was a symbiotic relationship because they would get money from these corporations or, you know, whoever it was from their district and they would get their votes and then they would need their money. And then the congressman would do something favorable. And it was, you know, back and forth. When they got rid of earmarks, you didn't really have the same level of direct like pet projects in the in the district. So there was a little less quid pro quo on those levels. But you still have members of Congress who sit on committees that are relevant to these companies and their interests, whether it's for health care and insurance or it's tax policy or whatever. They need these people to pass laws that are beneficial and advantageous to their industries. So. That's why they can't quit each other. That's why we keep seeing this. And they think that not enough Americans pay attention. And they're right for the most part. They've been getting away with this kind of cyclical system for years and years and years because most average Americans are not sitting there reading FEC reports quarterly, even though it's all public record. And there's a lot of rules about lobbying and having to report it and how, you know, who spends what time where. It's designed for that, for some transparency. But most people don't read that, just like most people don't read the Federal Register and all the regulations that are put out for comment to the public for 30 days. It slips under the rug. But there are lots of people who are paid lots of money to stay on top of these things for these companies. To Rick's point, those are the government relations people. I have many friends who are now lobbyists. A lot of times you have people who worked on the Hill. They become policy experts. And then they leave the Hill and go to the private sector and make three times the money. And they still have the relationships on the Hill with the members and other staffers. And everybody's having steak dinners and they get meetings, and they get access. And sometimes they get what they want, sometimes they don't. But that's the way Washington works. So that's what it looks like. And that's why these companies are continuing slowly but surely to start giving money again, because they want things to go right back to where they are, counting on the American people not to pay attention anymore. 
After January 6th, though, I think it woke a lot of Americans up to how fragile our democracy is and to see some of the people who were objectors and enablers of that insurrection. It woke people up like, who's going to pay a price for this? And corporate America said, all right, you know what? We have to stand with our democracy. We're not going to give them money anymore. But we saw how long that lasted. You know, the seductive lore of power and influence in politics. It's a hard habit to break. Look, it's all about getting that invite to dinner at the Capitol Grill. That's right. So, well, listen to all those companies out there in the immortal words of George W. Bush. You'll hear from all of us soon. That's right. Well, listen, guys, before we get out of here, remind us one more time when and where we can find LPTV. Tara? You can find LPTV on Twitter at LPTV. Also, we stream live through the Lincoln Project platforms on Facebook, on YouTube, and on Twitter. Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. And our sister show, we're speaking every Wednesday at 8 p.m. And Rick, the show will post to YouTube so you can watch it even if it's not live. That's correct. Rick, where can we find you on online, on the socials? Uh, I am on the Twitter at the Rick Wilson. And Tara, how about you? I am on the Twitter machine at Tara Setmayer, on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Well, Tara, Rick, thanks for joining me, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.